worship here at First Church of New Knoxville. We're so glad that you've decided to worship with us today. I want to welcome not only those that are here in the sanctuary with us, but also those who are listening on the radio and watching on Facebook Live. Uh, we're so glad we can worship the Lord together in all of those, uh, all of those avenues there. If you are not here with us, I encourage you to find our bulletin, which is located on firstchurchnk.org. That's our website. You can log on there and download a copy of the bulletin and follow along in our order of worship and our, uh, as well as the lyrics for our music this morning. Several announcements I want to draw your attention to before we begin our service of worship. First, we want to say congratulations to Ryan Opperman and Stephanie Burkhard, who were united in Christian marriage yesterday, August 29th, here at First Church. Congratulations to them. Also, we have some, we're continuing to sell some of our First Church cookbooks. We're having an end of summer sale, $5 each. Uh, you can find them back at the info center here on the side of our sanctuary. Uh, feel free to take as many as you'd like and leave the money in the blue jug. Uh, we have plenty of them. They're great for gifts for people. Uh, so feel free. Uh, we encourage you to, to take a look at that. The nursery, uh, child care is reopening for our morning worship service on Sunday, September 13th. That is two Sundays from now. Uh, that is the day of the ice cream social, uh, ice cream kickoff for Sunday school. Uh, I want to just thank all of those uh, fam- young families that have been uh, managing without the nursery since the pandemic began back in March. Thank you for your patience. I know it's not always been easy, um, and so thank you for that. Uh, but we will be looking forward to starting the nursery care back up again that, that Sunday, September 13th. And also thank you for our nursery volunteers who are willing to help with that ministry. We are so appreciative of that. Speaking of that, any nursery volunteers that are able to be here, we will have a short meeting after church next Sunday, September 6th, to kind of talk about some of the details and some of the changes that will be taking place in the nursery for this coming year. This morning, uh, in just a little bit, uh, Sharon Colson will be up front here talking about Operation Christmas Child and how you can begin to think about how to get involved for that this fall. So we're glad to have her here sharing about that this morning. A couple other announcements that I just want to remind you of. Last week we announced that we are changing our service time back to 9 a.m. starting Sunday, September 20th. Uh, That coincides with the start of the Sunday school year. So we'll be going back to the schedule for Sunday mornings that we had before the pandemic began, which was church here in the sanctuary at 9 a.m. with Sunday school to follow from 10.15 to 11.15. Starting September 20th, with the start of the Sunday school year, we'll also have a new men's Bible study, or excuse me, new adult Bible study led by Aaron Rohrbaugh. It'll be meeting in the ministry center, uh, the big room over there, and the topic of the study is end times. If you're interested in being a part of that study, there is a sign-up sheet at the info center as well as in the office next door. Uh, We encourage you to sign up so we can have materials and everything ready for that first day of class. Again, that's Sunday, September 20th, and thanks to Aaron Rohrbaugh for stepping up and leading a new adult Bible study. Also, one update about the men's retreat with Faith Alliance. Uh, There was some back and forth. There was a couple weeks ago I announced that we had to go ahead and cancel that retreat as a result of of not having enough men to to cover the cost of the retreat down to Gatlinburg. Well, I heard from Faith Alliance at the end of this week, just a couple days ago, and they've been able to to rearrange some things. And the men's retreat is now back on if if they have men that are willing to still go. But instead of going to Gatlinburg, we're going to be going to uh, Vermilion, Ohio, to Beulah Beach, which is a 
Christian and Missionary Alliance retreat center. Um, so if you're interested about finding out more information on that, uh, contact me and I'll be glad to fill you in. But the dates and everything, September 24th to 27th, is still the same. And the total cost for that trip would be $100. So again, if you signed up for the other one um, and you're interested in, in going to this, please let me know. Uh, with that, I want to turn it over. Sharon Cheney has her prelude this morning. Thank you, Sharon. Now I invite you, if you're able, to rise with me as we share our call to worship together, which is from Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him in my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you take your, let your faithful one see decay. 
You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. I invite you to remain standing and sing our first praise song this morning, Raise a Hallelujah. Oh 
you may, you may be seated. This time I want to invite forward Carolyn Lammers for our children's chat this morning. Just as we did last week, if you have children here with you and you'd like to send them forward, we are welcome to that now. We just encourage you to keep your distance as you come up here and kind of sit as spread out as you can up here on the steps. So uh, if you have any children here that would like to come up, come on up and join us for a children's chat. Anybody else out there? Gosh, I had to bring one of my own to make it look like we got somebody here, huh? There we come. Good morning. Why don't you guys sit over here a little bit? Okay, now I'm going to, did you go hunting or go shopping for school supplies? Oh, what did you get? Huh? Did you get markers? Huh? From when way back when I went to school, it was crayons were the big thing. Did you get new crayons and thing backpacks and stuff like that? All ready for school this week? You did too? Yeah, awesome. Everybody's got to have this. Oh, your birthday. That works out nice, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about markers, washable markers. What color is this one? Blue. Well, I'm going to tell you a story about these markers. Blue is in the box, and they all come in a box like this. And blue was like, oh, I am so lonely. I want to meet everybody else that's in the box. So he went around, and he looked for another crayon, or another, um, whoops, lost my markers. Looked for another marker, and he found yellow marker. And the yellow marker said, I am the most important color. I am the color of the sun. People will not get out of bed until I come out. If it weren't for me, nobody would get up. Yellow's your favorite? So Blue went around. He thought, well, I meet, well I'll meet some more people. And so then he ran into... Purple. Purple says, I am the prettiest color because the flowers are made like me. Flowers like violets and pansies. So Blue moved on to the next crayon. He said, I just met yellow and I've met purple. Who are you? Well, welcome. I am orange. And Orange said, I am so glad to meet you. Orange is so friendly. Everybody feels comfortable around me. I make friends really easy. While he was going on, he says, well, that's just four of us. Where's the other four? Hmm. Yeah, I don't need the brown one yet. Aha. There's one way back there. Probably I'm in the way. Green is hiding from me. What color is this one? Green. And green says, why in the world do I have to be the color of grass? That is like so boring. I want to be bright and shiny like yellow. And I want to be warm and fuzzy like orange. But no, I have to be green. Well, blue could tell that green was green with jealousy. 
Well, he went on a little farther, and then he found brown. This marker had been busy working, and he had even had dirt underneath his nails and on his face. He introduced himself. He says, hi, I'm blue. Who are you? I really don't have time to talk. I'm really too busy. I'm the only one who works around here. Oh, he's met all kinds of people, hasn't he? Well, then he went on and he found black. And black was laying down and he seemed kind of sleepy. Blue said, I'm sorry to wake you, but I want to meet everybody in our box. The crayon yawned. Oh, that's okay. I'm so tired. I've been out all night while everyone else was sleeping. Others hardly noticed that I am in the night sky. Could you please turn out the lights? Not wanting to disrupt Black, let him sleep, he went to see Red. Is that what this one is? And Red says, so, I suppose you met everybody else. I'm so important. I'm so pretty. I'm the only one that works. Blah, blah, blah. I'm so tired about hearing about everybody else. I just want to leave this box. Well, Blue thought about that for a while, and he thought maybe he better just have a meeting. So he got everybody together, and he said, I'm glad you all could come. He looked at Yellow. You are important. But so is every other color in the box. If everything was bright and yellow, we would have to wear sunglasses all the time. Then he turns to purple. Purple is a very beautiful color, but roses are red, and other orange butterflies are around, and the grass is a lovely green. Brown, you work really hard, but sometimes you need to stop and take a break. Black, You may feel unnoticed, but you are everywhere and not just the night sky. Your shadows may be hiding, but we still see you. Looking at Red, he said, I know it's hard to listen to everybody else's problems, but we're all in this box together. Listen to your neighbor's problems like they are your problems. So Blue's meeting was successful. And he found out that they all, once they listened to everybody else, they all got along really good because they all had one purpose. And that purpose was to make wonderful, beautiful artwork. And they can do that best if they worked all together, just like we can work all together. Because we're all different, and we all each have something special to do. Let us say a prayer, please. Dear God, Thank you for your great big world. And yes, we are so different. We Help us to appreciate each other's differences and all live here together in peace and harmony because we are children of God. Thank you for making us different and help us to live in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Carolyn. Thanks, kids. You guys go back and find your seats. This time I want to invite forward Sharon Colson. She's going to be sharing with us about, as I mentioned at the start of the service, sharing, us, sharing with us about how we can get involved with Operation Christmas Child again this year. Sharon, thanks for being here.
Good morning. Carolyn, if you don't know what to do with those uh, markers when you're done with them, I'm sure they'll fit in a shoebox. Okay. And I want to thank Sharon Cheney for the prelude this morning. Uh, I love to tell the story is one of my grandmother's favorite hymns, and it is very appropriate for what I want to tell you today about Operation Christmas Child. Sunday, November 15th is 77 days from now. Sunday, November 15th will be Celebration Sunday for Operation Christmas Child here at First Church. What is Celebration Sunday? Celebration Sunday, also known as Shoebox Sunday, is the last day for you to bring your shoeboxes in so that they can be prayed over during the service, and then they will be loaded up and sent on their journey to faraway places in the world. Greetings to the congregation here today who saw shoeboxes at the entrances when you came in. Those are ready to be picked up and filled. Greetings to the recipients of this month's newsletter, which explains the important dates for OCC for the 2020 season. And greetings to those listening on the radio and on Facebook Live. My name is Sharon Colson, and I am the project leader for Operation Christmas Child here at First Church. Operation Christmas Child, also known as Packing Shoeboxes, is an international humanitarian and evangelical outreach of Samaritan's Purse International Relief, of which Franklin Graham, son of the famous evangelist Reverend Billy Graham, is president. The shoebox program began in 2003 and has grown mightily ever since. This might be the most important year ever to reach children with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the midst of a pandemic, children are frightened, families are struggling, and people need to know what hope they have for the future. We do not know if these are, in fact, the end times. The COVID-19 global pandemic has disrupted everyday life for millions of people around the world, yet Samaritan's Purse continues to show the eternal hope of the gospel and serve in Jesus' name. As you note in today's bulletin, the offering for today is designated for Samaritan's Purse. And even this morning at 6 a.m. on the radio, I heard a, a public service announcement from Franklin Graham asking for volunteers to help with Hurricane Laura. We want children around the world to know that God loves them. He has not forgotten them and that he cares for them very much. Operation Christmas Child is a powerful way to show God's love, and OCC is proceeding full speed ahead to show, to deliver gifts of shoeboxes to millions of children around the world. Your shoeboxes can go where missionaries can't, and you can be a missionary by packing a shoebox. Every shoebox represents some boy or girl that we can reach with the gospel. Dozens of countries that have been racked by the coronavirus are opening back up 
to receive and distribute shoebox gifts. At a time when many missionaries have had to retreat from their fields, our church partners are stepping into the gap and are ready to use these gifts along with the greatest journey materials to share the gospel. Every child who receives a shoebox also receives, in their own language, the greatest journey, discipleship materials, and a New Testament. So it's not just a gift that they're getting of a shoebox. It's also the discipleship that they learn when they take the 12-week classes. Personally, I would like to thank the First Church trustees, Pastor Joel, the custodians, and the volunteers of August 15th for making available to me the former Sunday School Superintendent's office upstairs to use as a central location for OCC here. I would also like to thank the consistory for approving the purchase of shoeboxes again this year. And they're the cardboard, entr- the cardboard boxes that you see at the entrances. The OCC program here is for all to participate in. One, you may pack your own shoebox. Or you can buy a box such as this at Hobby Lobby. This actually is a very special box because I've prayed over this box all year. And it's kind of a fluke why I have this box. My husband and I also ring for bell ring for Salvation Army. And we were at Kroger's last year when an individual that I recognized from New Knoxville came in to Kroger's thinking that Kroger's had a drop-off for the shoeboxes. It was already past National Collection Week. So I went up to her and I said, I would be more than happy to take your shoebox and pass it on next year because we're already past, we're already past National Collection Week. But I do not know what is in this, in this shoebox. Once your shoebox is packed, you've prayed over it. It's prayed over by the congregation. It's prayed over by the individuals at the processing centers. It is opened only to look for if there is any money inside or any forbidden items, such as military war-related items, glass, liquids, candies, items like that that are forbidden items. The second way is you can pack a shoebox that we provide for you. The third way is you can donate items. And just as I had last year, I will have these in the Heritage Room. These are suggested items for 2 to 4-year-olds, 5 to 9-year-olds, and 10 to 14-year-olds. These lists will be on the table in the Heritage Room. They're also available on the website, and I will be having those on other locations at the other other entrances as I get more materials. The third way you can help is you can participate in a packing party. Those details will be forthcoming. The fifth way you can help is you can donate financially towards purchases. As you recall last year, with monetary purchases provided by members of the congregation, I was able to buy a lot of shoes for less than a dollar per pair. 
Another way that you can donate financially is towards postage. If you have a quarter and you have an empty pill bottle, every time you have a quarter, put that quarter in the pill bottle. This pill bottle, standard size pill bottle, holds exactly $9, which is the cost of postage to ship a box. And most of all, you can pray. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Thank you, Sharon. Operation Christmas Child is a really, really great ministry, and I want to thank Sharon for her hard work in that, and also thank all of you for, uh, it was a great uh, ministry last year, and as Sharon pointed out, it is uh, just as important, if not more important, this year to be involved, so I want to encourage you to get involved in any way that you can. And one of the most important things you can do, as Sharon just highlighted for us, is to pray. So let's take a moment, pray for that ministry, as well as other concerns that are on our heart and mind. Father God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you that we can gather together as your people and worship you. And uh, pray now, Lord, that as we turn our attention to you in prayer, that you would work according to your will in each of these situations. Lord, we pray for Operation Christmas Child, that you would provide... Lord, uh, for this ministry, not just here at First Church, but around this world, Lord. And I pray that those shoeboxes would be a blessing both practically and spiritually to all those who receive it. I pray also, Lord, for the, the students that will be going back to school this week, as well as those that have already begun, Lord, in this area. We pray for safety. We pray for health. We pray for the teachers and administrators and aides, Lord, as well, that are going to be in there and and a school year unlike any that they've experienced so far. So we pray for your grace and your provision in all things, Lord, related to, to the start of these new school years. And Lord, we pray for the names that are represented on our list here. Each situation is unique, and you know exactly what is needed for, for each individual and each family that's represented here. So we pray for your grace and your blessing, your healing and your provision. And most of all, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and that you would bring good even out of hardship, and heartache. We pray all these things in the name of Christ who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. If you're able, I invite you at this time to stand with us as we continue to sing our praises this morning. Our hymn is Great is Thy Faithfulness. The words are in your bulletin.
seated. Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning with verse 6 through the end of the letter. Once again, that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it with me and follow along. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the reading of your word, and I pray now that as we turn our attention to it, that you would give us grace to hear and understand what you have to say to us today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give me words to speak and that you would soften our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As you can see, we are, we are wrapping up our journey through First and Second Thessalonians today, and, and we're coming to the conclusion of Paul's letter. And in like so many of Paul's letters, as he wraps up his, uh, his communication with the church, he ends it by, by focusing on some more practical matters. It's a common uh, structure in Paul's letters to, to start with a greeting and, and some sort of maybe praise of, the, of, of what the church is doing and, of course, a praise of God himself. Uh, often then some discussion on more theological matters. And then usually he reserves the end of his letters for some sort of practical instruction. You see that in letters like Romans and, and Ephesians and also here in Second Thessalonians. After speaking about the day of the Lord and the man of lawlessness and, and the need for the church to stand firm and, and talking about prayer, he now turns his attention to some practical issues within the church. And the issue that he is addressing here has to do with, with idleness and disruptiveness. There's actually a few kind of layers to this passage. And so what I want to do for us this morning is kind of peel back one layer at a time. And so I want to begin by looking at what Paul is saying kind of on the surface to the Thessalonian church and the specific issue that they are dealing with. And so as you read through this passage, you heard the words read to you this morning. You notice Paul is addressing specifically here idleness, people refusing to work, people not putting in their fair share of the responsibilities in the church. And so Paul here is addressing that problem within the congregation. It seems that, that there were some people, for whatever reason, who refused to work. Instead, they were depending on the Christian community in Thessalonica to provide for them. He talks here about people that are idle and disruptive, that are, that are unwilling to work and, and, and 
kind of becoming a burden in a sense to the Christian community there because they were being they were forced to then take care of these people and provide for them. And I want to make a couple observations here before we get any further into the passage. The first is that uh, there's really no indication here as to why these people refuse to work. Paul doesn't say they're idle and disrupted. They, they refuse to work because of this reason. He kind of leaves that blank for us. And there's people over the years that have tried to fill in that blank, right? And we can make some educated guesses. I think probably the best theory out there is, is a misunderstanding of the second coming of Christ and, and, and the timing of that. If you read through First and Second Thessalonians, as we have done over these past couple months, you know that that was a main issue of Paul's letters here to this church. There were misunderstandings about the return of Christ. Specifically in First Thessalonians, the fear was those who had died in the Lord would somehow miss out on the second coming. And Paul assured them that, that when Christ returns, both the living as well as the dead in Christ will rise and be with him forever. In 2 Thessalonians, the concern was more about the timing of it. There were some in the church that were afraid that they had missed it somehow, that Christ had already come and they had missed out on the return of Christ. And in the issue, some more details surrounding that. So it, does, it wouldn't be much of a stretch then to think that maybe the reason why these people were refusing to work and pull their fair share was because of the idea that, that the return of Christ was going to happen in any moment, any day. And so therefore they... They kind of backed off on their regular earthly responsibilities. And if you think about it logically, there is, I'm not saying it's good logic, but there is some logic there, right? If Christ is going to return at any moment, then why am I going to go to work tomorrow, right? If Christ is going to return next week, then why do I need to invest in the future, right? Why do I need to care for those around me if Jesus is just going to come back tomorrow and prove it all for naught? There is some sort of logic there that makes sense, but it's not the best logic, right? Because the teaching of Scripture is not that Jesus is going to return tomorrow, but that he could return tomorrow. Does that make sense? It's that Jesus is going to come back and it's going to happen at any moment. He'll come back as a thief in the night. So we need to be ready for it. But Scripture never gives us a, a clear indication or timeline as to when Jesus is going to come back. Right? So, so we need to be careful not to confuse imminence with, with uh, the, the idea that Jesus could come back momentarily. Right? Jesus' return is imminent. It is going to happen, and it can happen at any moment. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. But it, doesn't, it never teaches us that Jesus is going to come back momentarily, which means he's going to come back tomorrow for sure, or, or we have this some sort of guarantee that it's going to happen in the near future. There were some in the early church that thought that way, and 2,000 years later, we're still waiting upon the return of Christ. So, so the reason why some of these people were idle may have been because they had a misunderstanding of, of Jesus' return and thought that they no longer needed to work or, or take care of their earthly business because Jesus could return in any moment. So that's the first thing to notice and, and draw attention to. The second thing is Paul's distinction here between those who are unwilling to work and those who are unable to work. Notice here as Paul is reprimanding those who are idle, he's not accusing people who are physically, mentally, or emotionally unable to work of being idle. In fact, he specifically says it's those who are unwilling to work that he's calling out here. And that's an important distinction to make. People that are able to work but, and contribute but are unable to do, but, excuse me, but refuse to do so. 
There are un- people that are unable to work or provide for themselves due to physical, mental, or emotional disabilities. And we need to make sure that we care for those people, both as a society and as a church. But that's not who Paul is talking about here. He's talking about people who are able to work, but refuse to do so. In fact, taking care of those who are in need is a huge concern throughout Scripture, right? If you look at the, both the Old Testament and the New, there's a, there's a repeated concern to care for widows and orphans. Right? Why, why widows and orphans? Why does Scripture continually single those people out? It's because they were the most vulnerable in that society. Right? In a patriarchal society, those without a patriarch, those without a husband or those without a father were the most vulnerable because there was no one to care for them. And so the Bible calls us as believers, as followers of Christ, to care for those who are in need, to protect those who can't protect themselves. <clears throat> but Paul here is not addressing that group of people. He's rebuking those who, in a sense, are abusing the system. They could provide for themselves, but chose not to. Why is that such a problem? Why is, why is Paul taking precious time and, and space in his letter to deal with that? Because there are people that were becoming a burden instead of a blessing to the church. Remember, in that day, there was no Social Security, there was no Medicare or Medicaid, no job and family services. There was the church, and that was it. And so, in a sense, the church was working with limited resources. The people who were, in a sense, mooching off the church were preventing people who actually needed the help from receiving it. Right. So for those that were able to contribute but weren't, They were taking away resources from those who truly and desperately needed it. And Paul is saying that is what is wrong with the situation. We're called to be a blessing rather than the burden. Paul reminds the church to continue to be generous, even though people are abusing the system. You know, those who are idle have a responsibility to correct their behavior, but it's not an excuse for the church to quit being generous or quit doing what they know is right. You know, we, we shouldn't have the mentality of a church that we take our ball and go home because there's a few uh, people that may be abusing the system. We are still called to be generous and, and do what is good. He reminds them to never tire of doing what is good. So we're called to keep giving, keep being generous with our time, our talent, and our treasure, kind of no matter, in a sense, what happens on the other end. Galatians 6, 9, and 10 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong in the family of God, family of believers. Giving and caring for the poor, especially those within the family of believers, was a defining characteristic of the early church. Right in Acts 2.45, when, when you get this description of what that early group of believers looked like, you get things like they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. But then in that same paragraph, in that same section, you get Acts 2.45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Right? That was a defining characteristic of the early church, was their overwhelming generosity. And we see that again in Acts chapter 6. It says, the twelve, speaking of the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. There are people in the church that needed 
help that needed attention. And, and so the apostles set aside people to make sure that was taken care of, that it remained a priority of the early church. We often look at this passage to emphasize right, the importance of the ministry of prayer and the word, but we all, which is true. But we also see here the importance and the priority of taking care of those who are in need. The apostles appointed seven men who were full of the Spirit in order to make sure those who needed help got the help they needed. And that is actually where we get the idea of deacons come from. Those are the first deacon servants of the early church. So Paul here is, is, is reprimanding, is, is pushing back against this idea of idleness. And his response then, his, his teaching here is telling the church to follow his example. It's excuse me, reminiscent of his words in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. See, Paul and his traveling companions, they always worked hard to provide for themselves, even though they had the right to depend on the gener- their generosity as ministers of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians, he reminded them that they toiled day and night. In Acts 18, we know that Paul was a tent maker and often used that to support himself and others in his ministry. And so Paul here reminds them of how, how even though they could have depended on the church, they didn't do so and provided for themselves instead. And there's a leadership principle here. Paul is leading by example. He's, he's telling people, he's, excuse me, he's not asking people to do something that he himself wasn't willing to do. And that's exactly what Jesus did as well. Think about when he washed his disciples' feet in John chapter 13. After completing the task, he turns to the disciples and says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. And if we want to really make change in a person's life, we need to set an example for them to follow. If you want to change someone's behavior, it'll take more than words. You need to model it for them. Do you want your children to know the Lord? Do you want them to be actively involved in Sunday school and and youth group? Then show them that it is important to you. Show them what it looks like to follow Christ. Let them see it in you, and and they will more than likely follow suit. Just telling them but not modeling it for them is not enough. Now, there's something here I feel like we need to address in this passage as well. It's, it's maybe the other side of the coin that Paul is addressing here. He's warning the church uh, and people in the church to not be idols, right? Not, not take advantage and be a burden on the resources of the church. But we also have to acknowledge that sometimes the other side of the coin can be just as dangerous. And that is making an idol out of busyness. Making an idol out of our own self-sufficiency. I was leading a conversation with a group of men at the Business Impact Network lunch the other day, and the discussion was was centered around the relationship between work and rest. And I asked them, how many of you feel guilty about taking a day off? And almost every one of them, including myself, raised our hands. We have made an idol out of busyness. It's easy to look down our noses at people who refuse to work. It's easy for us to call people out for abusing the system. But we also need to be aware of how we are allowing ourselves to be too busy, overwhelmed, and allow our schedules to dictate our lives. It's important to avoid idleness, but it's just as important to avoid making an idol out of busyness and our own self-sufficiency. And so that's the kind of surface-level issue that Paul is addressing here, is this specific problem that the church is dealing with. 
But in a more general sense, and this is the next level I want us to, to focus on, is, is not only are these people being idle and, and, and dealing with that specific problem, but they were being disruptive in the life of the church as a whole. On the surface, Paul is addressing those who refuse to work and are becoming a burden, but in a more general sense, he's, dealing, he's, he's addressing an issue where, where there is a rift being created within the Christian community. Idleness, as well as any other problem, can lead to division within the church. And it's something that needs to be dealt with and addressed. There's two details here from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 that, I, that are important to point out. One is this idea of walking and living that is a metaphor throughout Scripture for a way of life. And in fact, it, it's, it doesn't really translate well in the English, so we don't see it clearly. But what Paul is actually saying in uh, his warning about uh, uh, idlers or about those who are idle he says to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching. What Paul actually says there is he's warning about people who are living or, excuse me, who are walking idly, which doesn't really make sense in English, right? But it's a metaphor about those who are living a life characterized by idleness. In other words, he's addressing an issue that's not just a one-time behavior mistake every once in a while. He's addressing an issue or a concern that is ongoing, constant, repeated, that is, that is characteristic of these people. So, so it's an ongoing issue that is causing a burden and disruption in the life of the church. And it's defined further by those who do not live according to the teaching. Right? There is a standard which God has called us to live by, and it is this. It's, it's the teaching that we find in Scripture. Right? Paul was referring, of course, in their day, their Bible was the Old Testament, was, was the gospel stories of Jesus Christ. Now we have both the Old and New Testaments and the teachings of, of Paul and the, his letters like this that we have to look to. But this remains the standard by which we are called to live by, God's Word. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? We need to remember that Scripture is our authority. Right? That is what we look to as believers, uh, and it has the final authority for faith and practice. That's the standard by which we are called to live. And unfortunately, when, when we don't live by it, especially when our lives are defined by choosing to ignore the teachings of Christ, not only does it disrupt genuine community, but it hampers our witness as Christians. Hypocrisy is often listed as the number one reason why people are turned off by the church or, or choose not to believe in Jesus, is the hypocrisy of his followers. As author Brennan Manning once put it, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So there's a group of people here in the church, in, in the Thessalonian church, that, that were idle. And their idleness was causing not only a burden, but disrupting the life of the church as well. And so the third layer here is how Paul is calling the church to then deal with that issue. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time here today talking about. How to respond to disruptive people. Paul here gives us a few words. And one thing that he repeats twice, actually, in verse 6 and 14, 14 may catch us off guard. He tells them to keep away. He says, don't associate with those kinds of people. That seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Right? Didn't Jesus come to seek and save the lost? Didn't he leave the 99 to find the one? 
Yeah, that's what Jesus did. And so it seems harsh when we read Paul's instruction here, but when we understand why Paul gives it, it makes a lot more sense. Paul doesn't say to disassociate ourselves with others in order to make them feel bad, in order to to shun them and and exclude them from the group. The purpose of of what Paul's command here is is to help people see the error of their ways so that they can be brought back into the family, so that they can be reconciled, so that they can be restored, right? The goal of this is restoration. It's to help them to see the error of their ways so that they can repent and return and experience the grace of Christ for themselves. And so we need to ask ourselves, right, as we see a brother and sister in Christ living in a way that's not in accordance with Scripture, right, we're called to to talk with them about it in grace and in truth and in love and in mercy, approach that person and try to help them see the error of their ways. But the goal of it is to, of course, see restoration and reconciliation take place. And so we need to make sure we check the motives of our own heart, right? Why are we bringing something up with a brother and sister in Christ? Is it to shove it in their face and make them feel bad about it? Or is it to truly see them restored and truly see them following Christ? That's the goal right there. And we know that because Paul says that we're not called to treat them as enemies. We're not called to, uh, even, even as he tells us to, to be careful about those sorts of people, he still refers to them as brothers and sisters, as believers in Christ. And so we must look at each other that way as well. We need to make sure our heart and our motive is in the right place. I want to close by reading a passage to you from Matthew chapter 18. And this is actually, I'm going to be reading it to you from the message version, which is a paraphrase of Scripture. I don't always go to it, but sometimes there is a, the, the author of this has a way of putting a passage, a uh, way of translating a passage that just gets to the heart of the issue. And so I want to close by reading Matthew 18, 15 through 17. He says, if a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him, work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that in the presence of witnesses, you will keep things honest and try again. If he still won't listen, tell the church. And if he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start over from scratch. Confront him with the need of repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. Right? That's the goal. As we see, if there are people that are disruptive, if there are people that are, that are disrupting the fellowship of the church, the goal is ultimately not to exclude them, but to offer them God's forgiving love. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are a forgiver. Thank you, Lord, for your grace that extends to each one of us. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn as, as followers of Christ to be able to extend that grace in all possible ways to those that we encounter. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we prepare to close our service today. I want to invite you to stand and sing. This is a new song that we'll be singing. And it is going to kind of serve as our benediction for today. The song is entitled The Blessing, and some of you may have heard it on on Christian Radio or other, uh, on Pandora, Spotify, something like that. But it's a great song, and the words are actually the words from, from the book of Numbers, the high priestly blessing that God gives to Aaron to to tell the people, and it's words that are familiar to her. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Let's sing that as our benediction together this morning.
Amen. You may go in peace. Oh, I want to go to church.